Welcome to Greensburg Baptist Church. We welcome our church family and also our visiting friends. Thank you for coming to worship with us. To find out more about Greensburg Baptist Church, our upcoming events, and other church activities, visit our website anytime at greensburgbaptist.com. Nick and Kendra, if you guys would also come for, or we can just come, we can come to you right now since all your, all your children are here. Um, and I guess it was October 5th, 2017, Brother Blake and I left with a team of other Kentucky Baptist pastors and we started the, on the journey to Zimbabwe. Neither of us had ever met Nick or Kendra Moore, but one thing that I knew, and I'm sure Brother Blake did, just as soon as we got off the plane and we saw them for the first time and we started interacting with them, we knew instantly that we loved them. Uh, it was as if we had known each other our entire lifetimes, and we hadn't. We had never seen each other before. But, you know, that's what Jesus can do. He can, he can knit our hearts together as if we have always known each other. That very first night that we were in their home, uh, they they took in a a huge crew, a huge team. And they did it with grace. They were so gracious. Their children are so gracious. Many of you have heard me share before. When when a team goes in, their children give up their bedrooms. They give up their beds, and it, and they do it with grace. And you know, I don't, I don't know how many of you would like to give up your bed, but they do it routinely. But that very first night, we were in their home, and they were just sharing with us from their heart. And it, it was just wonderful. It was like the Holy Spirit fell on that living room. And I remember one of the things that Kendra said that I have thought about so very many times in the two years that followed. She said, we do not want to be looked at as heroes. We're simply people who are serving Jesus where he has placed us. He's placed us in Zimbabwe. He's placed you somewhere else. And I, I've thought about that so many times, how true that is. You know, he has placed us somewhere. Now, the question is, are we serving him where he's placed us? And I, I am so thankful to say that they are serving him where they have, where he has placed them. And the Lord is doing remarkable things through them and their ministry in Zimbabwe. We're so glad you're here. We, we've looked forward to this day for months. As I said earlier, you, you've, I know many of you feel like you've known them. You've heard their names. You've seen their pictures. We have shared specific prayer requests with you to pray for them, and I know you have. And I, I'm sure they will share later, but they, they appreciate you praying for them. Let's not stop. Continue. The work's still going on. And we're going to take an opportunity to pray right now. Brother Blake, would you lead us? Hey, if you guys would, would you just maybe, would you stand today and let's just extend a hand toward them as we pray over their family and their crew? All right. Father, we thank you so much for the Moors. Uh, God, we, we are excited here. As one of our boys said last night, Dad, tomorrow is going to be the best Sunday of the year. And um, I don't know if he meant that because I wasn't preaching. Um, but God, I, I do. I know that we're excited, Lord. This church is excited, Father, to see God, the hands and feet of those that we pray for, God, those that when we place money in the offering each week, God, to be able to help them go further, the gospel to go further, Lord. So I thank you, God, today to putting faces and lives and people in front of us. Lord, we're honored and humbled that you would allow your servants to be here in our midst. And Father God, we we thank you for them. God, we are honored and privileged, Lord, to have the opportunity to pray for them, to hear from them. God, to be a part of sharing with them and taking the gospel to Zimbabwe. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would prepare our hearts, God, that our hearts would be receptive soil. Father God, that we're here and receive the word of God, preach to hear the sharing of their story, God. We thank you for it. We pray you bless them with peace right now, that you will give them clarity on anything they are to share, God. I pray that you'll just guide and direct them. And Father, Lord, that you will knit our hearts together in perfect unity, Lord, that there will be a desire and a zeal to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people nations, tribes, and languages. Father God, I pray now that you would again move the hearts, Lord God, of the youngest to the oldest here. Father God, that we would be in complete and total obedience to the leadership of your Holy Spirit, and we would follow you wherever you lead us. Father, again, thank you for Nick and Kendra and their crew. We pray your hand of blessing on them always. Would you allow your grace to be multiplied in their hearts and minds? We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. 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 Would you officially welcome the Moors to Greensburg Baptist Church?
thank you guys so much. Um, that's really the only way I can begin is just by saying thank you, not just for welcoming us today, but for everything you've done to keep us and support us while we've been on the field. From care packages, uh, my wife says sometimes Target will throw up in our living room in Zimbabwe, and that's largely because of people like you who've been generous to send things over with teams when they've come. It's just been such an encouragement um, to know you from afar and now to meet you face to face. And so we're grateful to be here. Uh, my name's Nick Moore, and I learned early on in my ministry that the sooner I can pivot from me to my wife, uh, the better. Uh, so this is my wife, Kendra. And Kendra, can you introduce us to the family? Okay, we've got Jake is the oldest. He's 14. Jimmy is 12, almost 13. Libby is 10, no, 11. Uh, sorry. So that's usually the man that's who why messes I that up. I know. Sophia is almost 10 in November. Um, Kate is 8. Yeah, <laughs> she's nodding. Yeah, I'm 8. Okay, Juliet is 6, and Johnny just turn, or turns 5 tomorrow. And on your way out, you'll get a chance to take one of our cards. And if you just look at the picture, it's the same picture on the back. And on the front, the names just go in that same descending order. So if you want to pray for our kids individually, you'll just... And that's the way I have to do it in my mind, too. I just count down and... Oh, you're that one. So that's who we are. And um, I just wanted to talk a little bit this morning about how we took this crew uh, around the world to Zimbabwe, Southern Africa. Um, so that you don't have us committed because we're crazy. Um, I wanted to talk through a little bit of sort of what God did in my heart and then allow Kendra to talk a little bit about how God brought her to a point of um, willingness to go. So for me, as a man, probably was more uh, fact-based in terms of just walking through some statistics. And as a pastor, I pastored for eight years in the Louisville area. And I was taking short-term trips, kind of like Blake's been doing, and Todd, uh, to Zimbabwe to help train pastors there. And as I did that, God just started pressing some numbers on me um, so that I, I started to realize a great need. I don't know if you know this, but over the last probably 50 years, there's been a massive shift in global Christianity. So if we bring up that first slide, uh, what we've been talking about and thinking about uh, is... The next epicenter for missions, and we want to impact that epicenter by theological education. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, an epicenter is sort of a, the central uh, point of a movement. Uh, I guess you could talk about an earthquake having an epicenter, and then everything sort of goes out from that. But a movement will also have an epicenter. And we believe that God is doing great things in Africa so that Africa could very well be the next epicenter for global missions. And here's why we think that, if we'll go to the next slide. Uh, throughout history, the epicenter for Christianity has been a moving target. Uh, it began in Jerusalem, as we know, in Acts 1.8, and then it moves out to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then eventually has a, a base in Antioch. And then if you just bring all the other ones up, it goes from Antioch to North Africa, uh, North Africa to Europe, you know, around uh, 1492, you see a lot of sort of Christian people bringing over to the North American continent. And for the last about 200 years, uh, North America, you've started to, you've had sort of this center of Christianity here. And then Europe has been waning, and then you've seen some movement in, the, in Asia. But for about the past 50 years, there's been a shift in Christianity towards what uh, people call the global south. Uh, Africa... South America, the Middle East, and uh, Central Asia, actually. And so about 75% of the world's Christians now live in one of those areas I just mentioned. Africa, South America, the Middle East, and Central Asia. And so what we're realizing is that the center of Christianity is shifting again uh, to the global south. Unfortunately, uh, what is not shifting at a concurrent rate is the uh, preparation for that movement. And so there are lots of pastors outside of America who don't have any training in the Bible, in theology, and how to preach and teach and lead a congregation. 
Uh, some people estimate that there are about 5 million pastors outside the United States, um, about 80% of whom have no theological training whatsoever. Meanwhile, here in the United States, um, about 95% of our seminary graduates stay here. And so there's an imbalance there. Uh, about 450,000 to one outside the U.S. Uh, in terms of 450,000 people to one trained pastor in the U.S., it's about 250 to one. Uh, so I just saw a huge need there. And I started trying to think and pray about how God might help me meet that need. Um, if you look at the statistics that come on the next slide, one of the reasons that that growth has happened is because Christianity is on a rapid increase in sub-Saharan Africa. These are regions of the world where Christianity is, over the next uh, 30 years, projected to either decline or plateau. So in Asia, it's going to go from 13.2% to 13.1%. In Europe, it's going to go from 25.5% to 15.6%. Latin America, 24.5% to 22.8%. Middle East and North Africa, it's going to be basically the same. North America, it's projected to go from 12.3 to 9.8. But notice Sub-Saharan Africa. It's going to rise from 23.9% to 38.1%. What that means is that by 2050, almost 40% of the world's Christians will be Sub-Saharan African. So the question we have is not if Christianity is going to flourish in Africa, but how. And what are these African Christians going to be able to accomplish for world mission? So I had this early calling that I, I needed to help prepare these leaders and these pastors the best I could. We move to the next slide. Uh, these are some statistics about birth rate and some other reasons why uh, the population of Africa is becoming more and more Christian. If you can move to the next slide. These are some conclusions that I've reached. First, Sub-Saharan Africa is fast becoming the new heartland for Christianity, fueled by birth rate, the history of missions, and the cultural milieu of Africa. And we have a temporary window to get ahead of this thing. So we've got about 30 years to try our best to influence these leaders uh, in the right direction. I'm going to talk a little bit later about some of the challenges that we face to that end. So here's some questions, some implications that come up. There's a potential epicenter, a new epicenter for missions that is right outside our door in Africa. And the new center for theological influence, which means the church that is rising, which might actually be the majority church at some point, we have an opportunity to influence that church. And so that's sort of what got my mind going towards the idea of bringing my family to Africa to help train pastors. So I came home and spoke to my wife and said, you know what, I think God might be calling us to Africa. And my wife said, You can find it. Hello? I said, you can find a new wife. <laughs> uh, he, he probably went, I don't know, five five or six times before coming home and saying, I don't want to go anymore, I want to, I want to live there. And up until that point, I'd really seen my my contribution to missions as letting him spend our money to go and I would hold down the fort and not complain about it. So when he came home, that literally was my response. Like, I'm not moving to Africa. You've lost your mind. And he understood that and said, you know, I get that. I know that it's a heavy thing to ask, um, but will you pray about it? So I said, yeah, I'll pray about it because I knew that God would say, no, that's crazy. <laughs> and she knows but, God better than me. Yeah. So. But I really did pray about it. Um, I was teaching a Sunday school class at the time. We were going through Hebrews. And it was about a year of praying and studying through Hebrews that God started changing my heart. And really what it was, it wasn't so much giving me a heart for missions. It was more he was building my faith. He was building my faith in a coming kingdom. That life isn't about this place. Um, but there's something better. So live it for him. And... It wasn't, he didn't necessarily grow my love for the, the African people or just the work even. It was more just trusting him to say, what have you planned for us? What is our Ephesians 2.10, which says he's planned works beforehand for you to walk in. And it just became clear um, as he built my faith to let go of some of the securities that I thought I had, um, that I had a husband at home who was like, had his bags packed 
and who's gifted to meet a significant need somewhere that not many people are gifted to meet. And um, long story short, I was out getting away from the kids one night and having a meal by myself in Qdoba. (laughs) And I was catching up on some of my news stories and some of the blogs I follow and things. And um, some of you might follow LifeSite News. Well, there was a story on there about a woman in China who had been forced to have an abortion. And um, she'd been drugged out of her home, and her teeth were knocked out, and she was eight months pregnant at the time. And in the picture, there was a picture of her with her baby at her feet. I cry every time. And um, I went out to my van, and I was praying for her, and I was just asking God, to give her hope because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine the level of hope or the level of grief she was feeling. And she was grieving it without the hope that we have of God's promises. So I was praying for her and I was asking God send her someone. And as I prayed, my prayer turned into send us, like I'll go. And cause I realized as I was praying, I'm praying for him to send somebody to do something that I'm not willing to do. And I went home that night, and I just told Nick, I'm ready. I think, I, think, I think I'm there. And we started moving in the process, and now we're living in Africa. Now we're there. So, so God called us to a specific location. Um, sometimes people go into missions in general, but for us, we knew from very early on that Zimbabwe was the target for us. And so I just want to introduce you to our context. If you move forward a couple of slides to the first photograph, um, the back of this card says, serving Jesus or living for Jesus in the wild. And you can see this is where we live. This is the Baptist Theological Seminary of Zimbabwe. And this is a view actually from our front yard, basically looking out across to the seminary itself. Um, The Baptist Seminary in Zimbabwe was started in 1955 by Southern Baptists and was basically run uh, by Southern Baptist missionaries up until the mid-90s. And then around 1994, they had a a shift in some methodology and moved away from seminary education and basically handed the keys over to our African brothers there with not much of an instruction manual on how to operate the thing. And so over the last 20 years, uh, 30 years really, there's been um, significant decline in terms of the quality of of leadership there and financial burden has come upon the seminary and theological error was introduced. And so in many ways, this seminary was hanging on by threads. Um, And yet I had this burning um, sense that God wanted me to do something to train pastors. And historically, uh, seminaries have been a a big part of pastor training. Uh, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And so we felt like God was calling us here to the Baptist Theological Seminary of Zimbabwe. Um, When we got there, there were about 15 students left and two lecturers. And the 15 students uh, of them, about three had outside sponsors from the U.S. who were paying their uh, tuition. And so those were the only three who could actually pay Uh, The rest were there on credit, and so the debts were just continuing to accumulate. And so if you move forward a couple slides, there's uh, our sign out in front of the seminary. One of our uh, helpers, I think some of uh, Blake or or Todd may know this guy. His name's Laxon Chiumbera. And then next, uh, these are some of the lecturers who have come since I've been there uh, that I serve alongside. I'm the one in the middle, if you didn't notice. Um, But these guys have, God has brought them onto our team. And uh, this is part of his answered prayer. And now you can see our student body is the next uh, slide. These are all of our students in our home. Uh, We had a a birthday party and they came over and joined us for a birthday party. And um, God has answered prayers. And let me tell you a little bit of of how he did it. Uh, Totally in a God way and unexpected through uh, farming, which I'm not a farmer and I'm not the son of a farmer. But when we got there, we noticed that, that God had placed us on a farm, and yet there was a lot of financial need. And so through various avenues, told us that this was what he wanted us to do, was start a poultry farm. Um, and so if you, the next slide, you see some construction that's happened. Uh, we actually built a 2,500-bird hen house uh, right there on the seminary campus. And if you 
roll through the pictures, you'll see that kind of taking shape. Uh, this is one, the first house finished, and then the inside of the house is the next photo with, with our birds on the ground. And uh, so that was the first house. We've now since built a second house. So we have a total of 5,000 birds on site. And this was somewhat inspired by uh, my experience in seminary. Uh, my parents didn't have money to send me to college, so I got a job working at UPS. And UPS paid for my tuition to go through Bible college and seminary. So this is our version of providing a job for seminary students uh, to pay their tuition to get through seminary. So our, our students will all work at this farm uh, 20 hours a week after they're finished with their studies. And um, by working 20 hours a week, they're able to pay uh, their way through Bible college and get their seminary diploma. And they're getting some practical skills, uh, which we're seeing in Africa, but even other parts of the world, the future of ministry is more bivocational. So guys who have some kind of practical ability to go and get into a marketplace and provide for themselves and then do ministry in addition to that marketplace skill. And so we're teaching that uh, through agriculture at this point. We want to introduce some other skills as we go. And so what we're driving to is the next slide. These guys will graduate. Uh, this is a picture of, of one of our recent graduations where we sent out four of our students. One of these guys actually just got back from a year in the Emirates, uh, United Arab Emirates. He spent a year there as an in intern and as a missionary uh, in an Arab country. So these are people who are willing to go. They have the skills and they have the uh, heart to go. They just need the preparation and they need the uh, resources to get there. And so this is the question that kind of keeps us up at night, this last picture, uh, this, this idea of how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. We have the firm conviction that God is up to something in Africa and it's very, very possible that the feet that bring that last bit of good news before Jesus returns will look like that. Uh, because these people will go to places that uh, many of us cannot go anymore because of strictures and, and visa uh, issues and, and things from being American. Uh, these guys can get in there. They can learn languages. They can live simply, and they will live on mission for Jesus wherever God sends them. And so we ask you to pray for them and pray for us as we help prepare them. There's some prayer requests on the back of the card uh, that you'll get uh, in terms of praying for us as a family, praying for the effort and then praying that we will give them the skills necessary to go out to be church planners and missionaries to the ends of the earth. So if you would, would you bow and let's pray together to the, for those things and we'll transition over to open the word. Father in heaven, we are grateful for what you're doing in the world. Lord, it is humbling to see how you are raising up laborers in a field where many of us would look and see weakness and that there is nothing there to work with and that there is challenge and difficulty at every turn but God you are a God who takes what we perceive to be weak and you use it to shame the strong you use what we might perceive to be foolish and you use it to shame the wise and you use the things that we would perceive to be of no importance or significance at all to bring to nothing the things that we see as great significance. And so, God, we think you are up to something in sub-Saharan Africa and in Zimbabwe, and we thank you for what you've done this past term for calling our family there and giving us direction and strength. And, Lord, we thank you for this church, and we thank you for the support that they have provided financially and through prayer and through sending their pastors and sacrificing that time with their pastors to to have them over there helping us move the training forward. Lord, we thank you for the co-laboring that exists to, to make this happen. Lord, you've not just called our family to Africa. You've called us along with all of the body that you've called around us to be a part of that work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use this time this morning to remind us of that calling. Uh, Lord, we pray for the students right now, um, even those who we've seen in the pictures and those we haven't, Lord, that you would give them grace and that you would continue to grow them up in the wisdom and the stature of, of your knowledge and of favor with, with you and men, that you would call them out to the ends of the earth, Lord, that you would open up doors of opportunity for them to go into closed countries, countries that are dominated perhaps by another religion, countries that a 
a white person or an American would have a difficult time coming in to do ministry, Lord, we pray that you would call our brothers and sisters in Africa to that calling to go and to share your good news so that your kingdom might come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To transition a little bit now to a time in the Word, if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it out and join me in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11. We've talked a little bit about how God called us to Zimbabwe. And if I were to point to a place in Scripture that helps me understand how God has kept us there, it would be here in Hebrews chapter 11. If you join me in... Chapter 11, verse 32, we'll read on down through verse 40. And you saw my family in the photo, so please know that kids talking and making noise is more than familiar to me, so don't ever worry about that. The author of Hebrews writes, verse 32, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to your word this morning asking for your wisdom and your light to shine into our hearts. Lord, even as has been mentioned, that your word would pierce like a two-edged sword down to the division of the joint and the marrow, to the division of the soul and the spirit, that you would expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts in such a way that we would see what you are doing in the world and how you have called us to be a part of it. Whether we live in Greensburg, Louisville, or Zimbabwe. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I'd just as soon stay home. If they don't have a Grand Ole Opry like they do in Tennessee, just send me to hell or New York City. That'd be about the same to me. Probably not the first song that comes to your mind when you think about a praise and worship service. Maybe you're surprised to hear it from the mouth of a missionary this morning, but I have to confess that over the past two months, that song has been resonating in my heart. And the reason for that is, two months ago, we stepped off an airplane and our feet touched American soil for the first time in three and a half years. And I don't know if you've ever spent a a large amount of time away from your homeland and everything that's familiar and comfortable to you, but there's a feeling uh, that's really indescribable that comes over you when you return back to a place that you would call home. Uh, I grew up in the hills of eastern Kentucky 
and saw the, the mountains and the trees and the, the landscape my entire life. But when we drove into eastern Kentucky again for the first time after returning home, it was like one of those videos where the guy has been colorblind his whole life, and now all of a sudden he gets those glasses where he can see everything uh, clearly and, and for the first time, and it's just amazing. That's the way we thought and felt when we saw Kentucky again. It was like being back in the promised land. Uh, if, you're, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, being back in the Shire, uh, you're there and you're, it's just the, the smell is sweeter, the air is fresher, the, the, the light is brighter. It just seems so majestic. And that's the way we found ourselves over the past couple of months. In fact, it was providential. Uh, we actually came back the week of July 4th. And so it was kind of a little bit more normal when my wife was walking around Target just randomly saying, I love America. <laughs> it was still a little weird, but it was a little bit more expected in the July 4th weekend. Uh, so we, we've been experiencing that over the past couple of months, and we've been think, I've been thinking about songs like If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie. Because think about what Hank Williams Jr. is saying there about his home place. He's comparing it in terms to the promised land, to the new Jerusalem. We were driving through West Virginia recently, and I, I kid you not, we were coming over the mountains right before Beckley, West Virginia, and we were listening to a satellite radio station, and all of a sudden, almost heaven, West Virginia, came on the radio. And I was like, man, this is so perfect. Because John Denver wrote that song looking at the mountains of West Virginia and thinking about how majestic and how awesome and how much of a sense of home and resonance that he felt there. Now to compare West Virginia or Kentucky or something like that to heaven might sound a little bit blasphemous, might sound a little bit idolatrous or sacrilegious. But if you think about it, there's something within all of us that resonates with that message. There's something within all of us that longs for the land of our birth, that longs for our roots and our home place. And we can even speak of it in glorious kinds of terms. Think about the patriotic songs that we sing. O oh, beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years thine alabaster city's gleam undimmed by human tears. It's almost heavenly and paradise-like in the way that we describe these things. And I think what is coming out of us in those moments when we think about our home place and our roots and the place of our birth is a longing for something the Bible calls home. As we come here to Hebrews chapter 11, that's exactly the theme that the author is picking up on here as he's describing the nature of the faith of our Old Testament forefathers. He's talking about these people who have walked through all kinds of trials and all kinds of difficulties and he's described how what has driven them has been this longing for a home. This letter was written to a group of Christians who came from a Jewish background and they were actually getting persecuted because they had converted from Judaism to Christianity and the temptation they were under was to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. This is too hard. I don't want to continue on in this. It'd be so much easier if we could just slip right back into our old way and just go to what's comfortable. And so throughout this book, the author has been addressing that issue of the fact that you will suffer with Jesus, but suffering with Jesus will be far more worth it than going back to what is comfortable because there is something waiting for you ahead. And he walks through here in chapter 11 what many have called the hall of fame, of faith. And he makes it clear through all of these examples that even though these men and women had different callings and different circumstances and different sufferings that they endured, they all had one thing in common. They all had the same home. They were all looking for the same homeland. And the author of Hebrews here sets out this as a baseline for our hope. The same hope that Adam had is the same hope that you and I have. The hope for a better country. 
In fact, the word that he uses here for homeland there in um, verse 10. He says, uh, he said, or sorry, in verse 14, that they were seeking a homeland. The word there is the same word from which we get the word patriotism. The word for fatherland. This love of country, love of home, love of nation. He says these men and these women that are listed in this chapter were patriotic in the true sense. Not that there's anything wrong with loving your country here and now, but their patriotism was for a better country, a better land. So this is our big idea for the passage this morning. That home for believers... Is about, a, is about a life of obedience which both trusts in and brings about God's kingdom. Let me say that one more time. Home for believers is about a life of obedience which both trusts in and brings about God's kingdom. So you notice... Home is not necessarily a place. Home is about what we believe. So notice here, first of all, in this passage, home is presented as wherever obedience is. Look in verse 32. He says, What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. So he begins here talking about this hall of fame and he kind of has come to a, um, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to summarize the rest of these. He spent a lot of time in this chapter sort of going through each of the stories in some detail. Now he says, look, I'm out of time. So let me just run through a few names here really quickly. Gideon, Barak, Samson. And if you're one of these guys in heaven, you're probably thinking, hey man, uh, I mean, I know Abraham's pretty important, but I mean... There were some pretty neat things that God did in my life too. Namely, uh, conquering kingdoms, um, enforcing justice, obtaining promises, stopping the mouths of lions. I mean, so you're Daniel and you're up there and you're remembering how God preserved you that entire night in the lion's den and stopped the mouths of those lions from eating you. Um, I'm willing to bet that when your pastors came back from Zimbabwe, they had some stories about lions. And they probably did not relegate it to just three words. They probably told you the whole story about how there's this park where there are lions and they went to go walk with the lions. They heard the lions roaring and and God saved their lives from narrowly being eaten by the lions, right? So, you're Daniel... And the author of Hebrews is telling the story. And all he, all he gets is, not even by name, but some of the prophets stopped the mouths of lions. But I think what the author is getting at here is showing that the point is not these people. The point is their faith. They believed God. From the beginning of this chapter, by faith, Abel, did this by faith Enoch did this by faith Noah Abraham Isaac Jacob Joseph Moses Rahab all of this has been running on the common denominator that they believed God and in God's future promises this is what the author of Romans Paul says about Paul about Abraham in Romans chapter 4 it says what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul will go on to say that that faith Abraham had led him to obey God and to follow God's commandments. And that's what the author of Hebrews says here. All of these people from Abraham, from before Abraham, but including Abraham onward... 
They have a faith that leads them to obey. And if you look at the names we've just read, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, these are men who are different in many different ways. They have different personalities, different callings. They were able to accomplish different things, but the thing they had in common was that God had called them and they believed God enough to obey. But the second thing we see about these men is that they were merely men. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we have a tendency to put up the content filter, especially for our kids. We want to point out the heroic things that people did. But read up on Gideon. Read up on Samson. Read up on Jephthah and Barak. They did some amazing things, but they also had some pretty shady things that were happening as well. Gideon, yes, he put foreign armies to flight, but he also ended his life building an idol very similar to the golden calf called an ephod. Barak didn't even put foreign armies to flight because he cowardly hid even though he was supposed to be leading the people of Israel into battle. Samson was no coward but instead gave his heart to a Philistine woman who ended up betraying him and causing his downfall. Jephthah made a rash vow that caused the death of his own daughter. David committed adultery and then later murder. Samuel had two sons that were total apostasies. So a word of caution is here that we, we dare not make the focus about the men. The focus has to be the faith. And in global missions, the same is true. As international missionaries, we cannot be the focus. And we will be the first to tell you we have feet of clay and we have imperfections and we have things that God is still working on us for. When I was a kid, we had missionaries who would come and we would call them real live missionaries, right? You've heard of those RLM, real live missionaries. And it was like they were larger than life because of what God was doing through them. But as Todd said, please don't ever see us as larger than life. There are no heroes in this work, merely those who have a common faith. And that's, that's the emphasis here. Home is not about where you live. It's about who you obey. And you don't have to change zip codes to be obedient. God has called you to be obedient where you are. God has called you to be obedient in the place where he has providentially placed you. And God has called us to be obedient in a different way. So we're merely obedient parts of the same whole. Home is where your obedience is. And the truth is, the Bible describes this church as a body. No part of the body is more important than another part of the body. If we are out here at the extreme ends, we're just a finger maybe, or maybe even a fingernail. But where would that finger be without the hand to move it? And that hand without the arm to operate it? And that arm without the shoulder to make it function? And that shoulder without a brain to send those signals? All of us work together. And the truth is, there's no way we could have done Anything in Africa if it weren't for you being obedient in your part of the body here. I've said that um, Apollo 13, at the end of that movie, uh, there's that scene where the astronauts are coming back into the atmosphere and the parachutes open and mission control just goes crazy celebrating, um, not because of what the astronauts had done, but because of what they all had done to make that mission a success. And that's what it feels like for us, that we don't want to be celebrated. We don't want the focus to be on us. We are all of a common faith with a common goal, and that's what home means. It's about where your obedience is. But then notice here, secondly, home is also what drives our obedience. Look in verse 35. The second part of that verse, you've heard about women receiving back their dead by resurrection, but then he goes on to say some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom this world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. A little bit of a tone shift there. Up until this point, we've seen people going to war fighting injustice, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching fire, escaping swords, putting foreign armies to flight, receiving back their dead. But now all of a sudden, those who are gone into captivity aren't released. Those who are being oppressed are mocked and flogged and chained and imprisoned. They're stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, going about destitute and afflicted, wandering in the deserts and the caves. This is where the sign-up sheet starts to get a little bit smaller, right? If you're talking about joining an army that's going to be victorious, you're joining a movement that's going to win, uh, we're going to put foreign armies to flight, we're going to stop the mouths of lions, man, that's going to be awesome. But what if you're stoned? What if you're sawn in two? What if you've got to spend the, spend the rest of your life wandering, destitute, and afflicted? There aren't as many of us who are willing to count that cost. So why Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned us of a gospel and a Christianity that operates on the idea of cheap grace. Here's what he says about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I think Bonhoeffer was picking up on something that the New Testament actually presents very clearly. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and many will find it. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who will find it. Basically what Jesus is saying is that when you follow me, there will be difficulty. And you look throughout church history, you look throughout Hebrews chapter 11, and you see there is struggle, and there is endurance, and there is suffering. But what the author here wants us to remember is not the suffering, but how these people managed to persevere. How did they endure that kind of trial? While they were being tortured... It says they refused release. So apparently somebody said, hey, we'll let you go if you compromise, if you recant your faith. How do you endure through something like that? On verse 35, he says they refused to accept release so that or in order that they might rise Again, you see, home is what drives their obedience. Their future hope is what keeps them in the midst of the trial. These men and women knew what Jesus was calling them to do, and they remembered what Jesus had said in Mark 13 and in Matthew chapter 10. You will be hated for all my, by all for my name's sake, but... The one who endures to the end will be saved. What's going to keep you in that trial? What's going to keep you in that suffering is knowing that by persevering to the end, you will receive a new life. The author of Hebrews is showing us the grounds or the motivation behind our perseverance that no matter what you might give up in this life, you will not fail to receive it 100-fold in this age and the age to come. 
Your pastors have probably told you about some of the things they saw while they were there in Zimbabwe in terms of the economic situation, the political situation. It was very difficult. And yet in the midst of that impoverished nation, there is a message that is presented to these people and is flourishing. In fact, the poverty and this message are fueling one another. And that's a message of, if you come to Jesus, he will give you your best life now. If you come to Jesus, he will answer all of your prayers and he will give you every deliverance and every healing and every breakthrough that you could ever want. It's a movement we refer to as the prosperity gospel movement. It actually originated here in the United States of America and has been proliferated throughout the, con- or throughout the globe. Tell me how I can look a mother, a single mother of eight children who has no food to give her kids and no health care to provide for her kids. And no prospect of being able to pay for their education or help them find a job in an economy with 96% unemployment. How can I look at her and tell her that her hope is in having her best life now? The author of Hebrews says, no, you're missing the point. What's going to keep you obedient and what's going to keep you through the trial and through the suffering and through the hardship is not hoping in your best life now. It's in knowing your best life is later. That you have a home that God has laid up for you that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We don't stand as those who invite people to a Jesus who will make you healthy and wealthy and wise. We stand as those who are inviting those in the highways and the hedges to come to a table that is eternal. And that will never run short of supply. These people may not have nice things to wear or impressive degrees on their walls. They may not have uh, jobs and security. But they've been invited into a kingdom in which the master has said, The least of these will be called up to higher seats and made first. And that's the only thing that's going to motivate them. That's the only thing that's going to keep them in the difficult trials. And that's also the only thing that's going to motivate you. Really. Because the little temporary comforts and treats that we have and the distractions that we have in a a nation that has been blessed like ours, they bring some temporary enjoyment and satisfaction, but they don't ultimately satisfy. It's like... Juicy fruit gum, you know, it has really nice flavor, but then like five seconds later, it's nasty. Like you don't even want it anymore. That's what these things are. And so what will ultimately keep us in our obedience and in our endurance is not looking for our best life now, but knowing that we are looking for a future and forever home. That's why one of God's graces to us Just before we left the field, and then when we got back to America, those things were bookended by funerals. Um, A week before we left Africa, one of my most promising students, we were talking about him last night at dinner, a guy who had really gotten it and was out doing church planting and pastoring and and was really a rising star amongst the churches, uh, in the Baptist world at least, Collapsed dead at the age of 31 of an undiagnosed brain tumor. And we preached his funeral and buried him. And then we got home. And just as we were on our way home, we heard that my wife's grandmother had passed away. And so I preached a funeral as soon as we landed. So you think, wow, that's really dark. That's not a great way to start your time here in the States. Oh, yes, it was. Because it was a reminder to us of why we obey. Of why we persevere and why we're on this mission in the first place. Because this world is not our home. Whether you're 31 or 91, your life is a blade of grass. You're here today 
and you're gone tomorrow. As the great missionary C.T. Studd once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So home is where your obedience is. And home is what drives your obedience. But notice here finally, the author says, home is what our obedience accomplishes. Look in verse 39. It says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So wait a minute. You're saying that they've endured, they've suffered, they've gone through trial after trial by faith, by faith, by faith, and then it ends and they haven't yet received their reward? Why? This is where we have to understand a little bit about the coming kingdom. Sometimes we think that those who have died in Christ have gone to receive their eternal reward. And the truth is, they've gone to be with Jesus, and that's the beginning of their reward. But their eternal kingdom and their eternal inheritance is still yet to come. And the author of Hebrews says, the reason for that is because it's not yet complete. Did you know that? That Jesus is still building the mansion in heaven. He's still preparing the place. And how is he doing it? Through our work. Through the works of these men and women. It was their obedience that has built God's eternal kingdom. Because God's eternal kingdom is not comprised of places and and objects. It's comprised of people. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. A multitude that no man can number gathered around the throne praising and worshiping Jesus. That's his end vision. And did you ever realize that if it weren't for Adam... And Abraham, and Moses, and Samson, and David, and all of these names that we've covered. If it weren't for them, you wouldn't be there. And neither would I. It was someone else's obedience that accomplished your eternal salvation. And all of it was fulfilled in the obedience of our Lord Jesus, who even though he was in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and became nothing. Lowering himself to the rank of a servant and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So that God might highly exalt him and give him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. It's their obedience. It's his obedience that has accomplished our salvation. And then after Jesus, somebody had to take the gospel to Jerusalem. And somebody had to take it to Judea and Samaria. And somebody had to take it to Antioch and to North Africa and to Europe and to North America. Somebody, we were talking about this last night, had to bring it into this Green County and preach the gospel so that your great-grandparents or your grandparents or your parents or you could hear it and be saved. It was other people's obedience that brought you into this inheritance. But that coin has two sides because you know there are still people in the world who are to be brought in And how are they going to be brought in apart from our obedience? It will be our obedience that continues to build this inheritance. This is why my wife quotes Ephesians 2.10. Paul says this, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's saying if you're a new creature in Christ, you have good works that God has prepared for you to walk in. For us, those good works are mainly on the other side of the world right now, walking in Zimbabwe. For you, 
God is showing you those good works every day that he has you with breath in your lungs to walk in those good works so that his kingdom might come and his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. No part of the Christian community will be complete without the rest of the Christian community being obedient. Our obedience is dependent on your obedience and vice versa. Your obedience to God's call on your life is fulfilling an active role in bringing about the inheritance that God has planned for all of those who seek Him. So not only is our sense of home and belonging found in that obedience, and not only is that obedience what drives us to continue, or that home what drives us to continue in obedience, but He actually says that through our obedience, home is still being built. And that's why it's so crucial that we seek the Lord's direction this morning. I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. As we reflect on what God's word has said to us this morning, there may be some of you who recognize that there is a calling God has placed on your life that perhaps you've not been totally submitted to. Maybe that calling is who's your one. Thinking of who that person is God has placed in your life that you're supposed to initiate a relationship with. You're supposed to initiate that conversation. You're supposed to speak verbally about what God has done for you. But you've continued to make excuses. It's not time. It just doesn't feel right. I'm just so busy. There are other things I have to do. I don't want to endanger the relationship. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. So I'll just, I'll just sit back and wait. And yet perhaps this morning you recognize that delayed obedience is disobedience. And the reason you don't feel a sense of purpose and belonging and contentment in your heart is because you're not walking in the obedience that God has called you to. And that obedience is where you will find your true home. Maybe there are others of you here this morning who have grown a little bit maybe discouraged or even distracted from the obedience that you know God's called you to. And maybe you're in the midst of doing that ministry. You're in the midst of fulfilling that calling, but it's just toil. And it's just labor. And it's just a struggle. And sometimes you feel like these people who are walking through deserts from caves, afflicted and destitute. Can I remind you of the hope you have in Christ? Can you let the Word of God fill you this morning with the hope of a future and a coming kingdom? We think driving through the hills of West Virginia or eastern Kentucky is amazing and beautiful and majestic and in many ways it is, but I has not seen And ear has not heard what the Lord has in store for those who love him. For now we see through a glass dimly. But then we will see it face to face. Press on. Persevere. Run with endurance the race set before you. Keeping your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. Finally, there may be some of you here this morning who recognize in your heart maybe a a sense of homelessness, a longing for a place to belong. Maybe you've tried different places and tried different communities and, and yet you just keep coming empty and dissatisfied. Maybe it tastes good for a while, 
feels good for a while, but then it just sort of wanes. Have you considered this morning that the reason you don't find that belonging is because you were created for something more? You were created not just to pay your bills and raise a family and and die, although those things are fine. You were created to be part of God's plan to bring about the redemption of the world. And maybe you yourself are not part of that plan this morning because you yourself need to be redeemed. You're separated from Christ. You've never come to Jesus with your heart and with your sin and surrendered before him and said, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. And maybe today is the day God is calling you out of your rootlessness and your homelessness to find rest in him, to find purpose in him, to find your calling and obedience in him, and to ultimately find in him your home. If that's you today, we're going to have a song and and a time of invitation. If you'd like to come and speak to someone about what it means to follow Jesus, to be part of his mission and his kingdom on this earth. We'd love to talk with you about what that means. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.